Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. In every episode, we bring you insights into the teams behind the teams in professional football. Coming up on today's episode. And it's it's an undeniable fact that it's the brain that's playing football. And we know a lot about the physiology. We know everything about the calves and the thighs and whatever. We know a lot about the tactics, but we are not we're not so knowledgeable about what is actually the, the, the brain processes that underlie these things. I'm Simon Austin from Training Ground Guru, and our guest on the podcast this month is Jez Buster Madsen. Jez is the head of research and development at FC Copenhagen, and I spoke to him before he appeared at our TGG Live conference in Manchester a couple of weeks ago. Jez told me all about his work in the field of cognitive neuroscience, which is one of the big untapped areas of football. Just to give us a little bit of background, can you tell us about your role at Copenhagen? Because it's quite an unusual one. My role at the club is to be head of research and development. And the reason why I ended up in FC Copenhagen was that Uh, When I was young, I studied philosophy, and then later I studied neuroscience, and I worked in research labs uh, at the Danish or Copenhagen University, and also Bispebjerg Hospital, Rigshospital, like classical Danish research institutions. Then I went uh, almost two years to the States, where I studied uh, medical pharmacology. I came back to Denmark, was actually starting a research project on psychedelics, uh, working on people with depression. Uh, we were doing fMRI scans, which is basically brain scans on, on individuals with uh, major depression. Then Corona came. And during, especially in the beginning of Corona, you couldn't have any patients, you couldn't do anything. Everything was just closed. So I started to become really bored. Um, and since I love football, um, I started just looking into well, what do we know about the brain and football? And that was just basically just for fun. I wanted to see what was out there. And I realized that uh, there wasn't a lot. I mean, the, the, most of the research was on concussions, but there was basically no research on perception, uh, so-called game intelligence, uh, decision-making in football. There was some, but it was not like a established field was many different directions and then I also realized that there was a lot of technological companies uh, arguing that they had like the 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 best solution for training the brain in football and I was a bit skeptical about that due to my knowledge about neuroscience and neuroscience methods so what I did was I basically called Sune Smith Nielsen uh, back then and we ended up having a good chat. He invited me for a meeting. Uh, I did like a small lecture presentation for them. It was probably a lecture because at the time I was doing lectures, so I was used to doing that. And basically my, my perspective was don't buy anything, <laughs> don't believe anything, just start at the most basic level because basic neuroscience in itself, I, I believe and also believed can help 
uh, player development and training in general. And there's a lot of scientific facts about the brain that I didn't really saw was being utilized. Um, so that ended up in more discussions, more talks, and then in the end, Suna, he offered me the job, um, which is head of research and development. Who was the guy at Copenhagen that you approached? What's his role? Uh, Suna Smith-Nielsen, so he's the academy manager. Okay. Uh, yeah. So when you did your research about football and how it was using neuroscience, you found that it basically wasn't using neuroscience? Yes. Yeah, I saw that there was basically no real research that could tell us anything about football players. And then I saw that there was products that said, do this and you'll become a better player. So I saw that there is no link because we don't understand the basic, um, the basic uh, scientific uh, facts about the brain in terms of football. And one of the reasons for that is that in neuroscience, normally when we understand a phenomenon, we either go into some kind of genetic manipulation of a fruit fly or a rat, and then we kill the rat, and then we look at the brain. We cannot kill uh, <laughs> academy players, so that's one problem. Uh, so that you cannot do that research. The other one is more looking uh, at you know changing things in the brain and then looking while the rat is running around what is happening in the brain. Um, uh, mostly with single cell recordings, these type of, types of things. Again, we cannot implement <laughs> uh, um, electrodes in the brain of academy players or first team players, so you can't do that. And the last thing is we would often experiment uh, with deep brain stimulation, other types of things, clinical perspectives, we cannot do that. So you cannot do any of those things that you normally do in neuroscience, so what about brain imaging? Well, brain imaging is amazing, but it has one fundamental flaw, and that is movement is its antagonist. Like, if you move in a scanner, you cannot use the, the results. Okay. So you cannot put a fMRI scanner on Ronaldo and ask him to kick a ball because it, it, it weighs multiple tons, so it's not going to happen. <laughs> so in that sense, neuroscience is cut off from all the different normal types of investigations it would do. Mm-hmm. Um, so we cannot take a rat and make it play football and understand football from there. We can only take human beings and try to understand them. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, neuroscience had to be a bit more speculative. Um, and what we basically did was to say, but what is the hypothesis? What, what is the idea? <laughs> what is the so-called cognitive model? So when you Let's say you want to explain how speech is produced in the brain, uh, and that is be, that has been explained very well for multiple reasons. It was one of the first areas that was researched, but you can also talk in a brain scanner, so we can see what happens. Uh, and from there you can form like these diagrams of this area lights up, this area, and so forth. And you can explain, well, if you have damage to that area, you cannot produce speech or whatever. So that's basically the first thing we did, was to come up with a, our own hypothesis. Like, this is what happens in the brain. Um, so that was the first thing we did, spend a lot of time on that, kind of picking knowledge from basketball, uh, American football, uh, general perception theories, uh, general knowledge about the brain, attention research, uh, scanning research from Guy Yordet, for example, all these things put them together to create like an idea of 
this is what we think happens when you play football. Mm. So have other sports been better at understanding and then applying neuroscience if football hasn't? No, not really. I mean, chess, if you call that a sport, yes, they are light years ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, but American football, no. Uh, but I do think American sports in general have a bit more sophisticated ideas, a bit more sophisticated tools for measuring different types of things. Um, so yes, they have been better, but not in the core question, what is sports perception? Mm-hmm. Um, that is still an area where I think our model could easily be used on uh, American football uh, or basketball or ice hockey or whatever you want to play. Mm-hmm. This was quite a jump really for the academy manager of Copenhagen. You've come in with no background in football yeah. and you've persuaded him to give you a job and a new <laughs> job. Yeah. What, what did you say that you'd be able to do for him to persuade him to do that? Oh, well, uh, I don't know what I said, but <laughs> I think uh, Sune, my boss, saw that there is a potential. And it, it's, a, it's an undeniable fact that it's the brain that's playing football. And we know a lot about the physiology. We know everything about the calves and the thighs and whatever. We know a lot about the tactics. Um, but we are not, we are not so knowledgeable about what is actually the, the, the brain processes that underlie these things, and that's that's something that that Suna saw, and basically, he asked me the question: How do we measure tactical potential? Right, that was the initial question. Um, I think it's a great question, and my answer then started to become: Well, we need a model. Because without the model, I can just tell coaches, working memory is important. And they'll say, great, uh, but now we're, we're training something else, right? But with the model, I can explain and say it's important for your scanning and it's important for your decision making and you can make a more valid argument. Um, and from there on, if you have a model, you can start to make hypotheses about players, right? Uh, you can say if a player lacks this skill, he might have this and this problem on the field because you have to associate working memory with behavior on the field. So that's the next thing we did. We looked at which types of cognitive capacities are linked to high performance in football. There has been six, eight studies on that showing that there are cognitive capacities that elite players um, outperform non-elite players in. And then it's basically looking at football <laughs> with this in mind. And then you can show uh, coaches and players what does it mean, for example, to have, uh, what does it mean to have a, a well-working attention when you play football, for example. And then you show them videos of that, you discuss that, you discuss how to train that. And then you, what is scanning? We know a lot about scanning today, but then what about working memory? Where does that fit in? What about pattern recognition and so forth? So you move slowly, build more and more what I call like practical knowledge about this. You go to the field, you look at the players, you do exercises, you see that this exercise you created sucked. <laughs> they were not doing what you thought they were doing uh, or what, what you thought they would be doing. Um, and then you slowly start to understand like you could call it like grassroots neuroscience, right? <laughs> because that's where we started, just by looking at the game instead of 
instead of saying, oh, in neuroscience, we can implant, implement electrodes in the uh, brains of rats. Let's try to do that. Instead, we said, no, 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 no. Let's just look at the game with like this textbook neuroscience knowledge and then see what, what kind of insights we get that we didn't have before. So you said earlier on that you realized that you could do some quite basic things, but have a big impact, you thought, because football wasn't doing anything in this area. Yeah. What were those basic things then to start with? If we should mention one, I think is, uh, of course, um, the importance of what we call ecological psychology, which is now today a bit more, I think it's a well-established term in training methodology, but it's also about explaining why is ecological psychology important. And the reason why it is important is because, at least in FC Copenhagen, we train the way we play. That means that all aspects of your exercises and your training has to have a link to the way you play. Mm -hmm. But that's easier said than done. Uh, said than done. So what we in there started to analyze was the language of the coaches, the behavior of the players. So basically, do we have the exact specificity in the exercises that we want to, to create the right situations for the game? Uh, and the, the way to explain that is actually through neuroscience because the perceptional net, the, your perceptional system is only being trained in the situations it's in, the environments it's in. So um, if you, if you want to make a player's um, scanning behavior better. A lot of people, what they do now is they make this exercise with the back to the goal. You receive the ball. Before you receive, you have to kick, kick, uh, look to the left or to the right. Then you have to say yellow or green cone or whatever. And based on what we know, uh, that's not an optimal way to train that due to ecological psychology because players don't fixate at other players during matches, so the, that's the first premise that's wrong. The second one is that players don't receive the ball with their back to the goal, at least in our style of play, we want them to receive the, the ball with their sides to the goal. And last and really importantly, the decision being made doesn't have any, what I call balance, it doesn't have any decisional value. And in a football game, every decision has value, <laughs> so you cannot just play to the cone. Uh, and then people might say, yeah, sure, Jess, but we're just training the mechanical movement of the head. And I would say, sure, but that's not how you should train scanning. You shouldn't train the mechanical movement of the head. You should train the relevance and the point of making that movement. Yeah. And you might as well start with that. Yeah. So in, that's the type of analysis we would do on the different exercises to see, are we really doing what we're doing? Or are we just um, solving solving the thing we want to train by creating a less good exercise. I actually posted a quote from Arsene Wenger last yeah. week from a video that I watched, and it was very, very good. And he was saying that football is about um, perception, decision, execution. And he was saying that every player had, like there's a billion different decisions in a game. Yeah. And that's why a coach can never pre-program a player what to do. Yeah. Um, is that kind of at the core of what you do then, would you say, and what you're looking at? Yes, uh, but in um, but we do add 12 other capacities to that. Okay. So uh, perception, 
perception is now we're going into philosophical and neuroscientific uh, turfs, but uh, from my understanding and my view of neuroscience, uh, perception is basically just all the raw perception or all the raw sensory data that your system receives. And that's a lot. And you don't consciously perceive all of them. Right. So that's like seeing, hearing, smelling, everything that touch. All of that. Yeah. And it just goes in. Most of it is actually not being processed consciously. Right. It's, it, it's a good example of this is, is the so-called uh, cocktail party effect. Uh, you're standing at a cocktail party, you're speaking with someone, you can only hear what he's saying, but there's a thousand people talking, you cannot hear the other conversations. Mm -hmm. Suddenly someone yells Simon or someone yells fire, and then you hear that word. And the way we explain that in neuroscience is that you actually heard all the conversations going on, but when a sensory stimuli that was relevant or had priority to you, it was kind of shown to the consciousness. Okay. And that's where attention comes in. So we divide, just to start from the beginning, we divide perception from attention. We don't say perception action, we say no, 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 perception, then attention. So the perceptional system might be how well you are at, at just uh, receiving data, analyzing data, but attention is the types of perceptual stimuli that you're actually consciously aware of. And that's where then priming becomes important. Because I don't, yeah, I, I, I agree with Wenger that you cannot pre-program players, but you can pre-prime players on which types of perceptional streams are worth looking at. And that's where the good coaches come in, because they teach the players which sources of information should you attend to, and thereby look at, and then start to analyze. Yeah. You. What types of information are there? On the football pitch? Well, I mean, there's there's a million. Uh, I mean, there could be sounds. It could be uh, the fans. It could be the judge, uh, the referee, it's called. Uh, the other players, uh, the coach. That could be just sounds. It could be uh, just seeing. Uh, what am I looking at? Uh, I have multiple examples of um, uh, players that are only looking at the ball through a match, right? They're mostly only looking at the ball, where you can look at more skilled players like Modric, Gundogan, they're looking way less at the ball during a match. So they're looking for other information sources that can help them understand what is going on tactically in this game. Right. So that's other players and space, is it? Yes. Yeah. But you could also say uh, that would also be what we call uh, proprioception, homeostasis, like your own body, how does it feel right now, uh, does it hurt in my knee, um, maybe my opponent, does he, does he look um, nervous, does he look anxious, I mean, there's a million types of, of stimuli that goes into a match and that's why priming is very, very important. Yeah. And we've, we've been discussing a lot, what is a good tactical way of communicating, at least we had this idea of also from an ecological perspective, to uh, start to prime the players on movements of opponents and teammates less than board tactics, right? So how much do you actually learn from uh, dots and arrows um, on, a, on a whiteboard? 
what is the actual knowledge from that because that takes a lot of intelligence to take those small dots and transfer them into a bodily movement and then when you're playing the game you you might discard that information because you're not really able to to take that into a movement so we started to work a bit more on telling the players what is the movement that allows for this tactical change um, which i think is, is really really interesting and something we still work on um, so that an example could be uh, there's two ways to tell the striker when to make the deep run you can tell him that when the aide has the ball and is looking towards the goal you should make the run right but you can make that on a whiteboard or you can tell the player to start looking at the aid and understand his movement. So when you know he's about to turn and can play in that space, that's where you make your run. So making him understand that looking at the other player instead of making him understand it from the whiteboard. Right. So the brain finds that easier and way more easier. compelling to, to do it in that way. Yeah. yeah. So the brain is immensely skilled at understanding visual cues. The biggest part the biggest sensory system devoted, uh, or the biggest sensory system, sensory system in the brain, and by far the sensory system that takes up the most space is the visual system. And manipulating uh, dots on a board or um, reading, for example, is way smaller parts. So uh, you should utilize that immense capacity there in understanding small changes in body position and when you should move and making that timing yeah. and it doesn't and also it doesn't matter if he understands whatever you draw on the board it understands whether he makes the movement at the right time we have found that uh, central players in our academy they have statistical significant higher rates of scanning but they also have higher rates of working memory and pattern recognition um, and we can also see that side players have not statistical significant, but do have a tendency to have much better reaction times. Um, so what that tells us is that, so on average, a central player, a good central player has an overall good score. A winger doesn't have an overall good score, but there are specific capacities where they often have good scores. So that allows us to say, if that player is supposed to play first team in a, month, in a year, then he's competing with the players that have the other cognitive capacities. So he needs to develop those capacities that we can see is needed in his position. Or if you take a winger, you can say, this is reaction time that he needs to focus on. So you can have a way more specialized focus in terms of what to train uh, and how to develop the player. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And just to go back a little bit, what yeah. do you mean by working memory and pattern recognition? So working memory is uh, basically your ability to remember information temporarily. So if you look at Frankie de Jong, I love watching Frankie de Jong. He will most likely scan three, four times before receiving the ball. But what he also does is that he also plays the ball to the areas most likely that he just scanned. So you can see it's not enough to scan and remember. You need to 
utilize that information to make a decision. So in the working memory, when we do that test, after you make a scan, we, 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 you know, we register that was a scan, we stop the game and we ask you, what did you just see? And we ask players about around 200 units. So if I remember 50 units out of 200, I only get 25% correct. If you remember 150, you use 75, you get 75% correct, right? And in that difference, we infer that that's because you're better at remembering that information because you are using that information. Information being used is way easily remembered. And then in the pattern recognition, we, ask, we actually do the same. After a scan, we ask you what was there, but we don't remove the players, we just remove the players' colors. And then we ask you who is on your side and who is on the opponent's side. And there you can more reason, he's probably on that, he's probably on this team, he's running that way. So there we are trying to understand the player's ability to analyze the game from their own pattern recognition. And pattern recognition is basically your stalled your, 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 what's it called? Uh, your stored, uh, the stored patterns that you can analyze, right? So a chess player would have millions of different scenarios they could quickly analyze. Football players have many different scenarios where they can look and understand what's going on without analyzing it consciously. They just know there's a six and there's a press and I have to move in that direction. Our podcast sponsor, Huddle, can help change the way you see the game. More than 35,000 football teams across the world use their pro suite tools to combine video and data into powerful insights and winning strategies via one connected platform. Huddle also offers consultancy services for high performance sport with world-class experience and expertise in data management, player recruitment, and head coach search. For more information, go to huddle.com forward slash TGG podcast. Have the coaches actually changed what they do as a result of the knowledge you've given them? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I okay. think uh, the language uh, has been changed and uh, the way we view many of these things, but I think I, we spent at least one year giving lectures to the coaches, talking about this constantly. Uh, we even had six months where we kind of forced the coaches to do what we call exercises with cognitive elements, where they had to coach on these things. Uh, so they understood not just only what is Jess talking about, but also how do I put that on pitch. And now when they understand what we're trying to say and what we're trying to do, we kind of remove that the forced exercises and now they have to implement it themselves into the training and into the exercise. And have the players improved during the time you've been working with Copenhagen? Are you, are you able to prove that? I can only say that our U19 head coach, Alfred, he, I asked him, do you think this has actually improved the players? And he said yes. <laughs> so that's for now what I can say about that. But these things are very, very, very complicated to validate because uh, there are so many things that goes into football. But what I will say is that in five years, I can answer the question. 
because then I have enough data and I can understand the data better. And the problem is that if we had the data for five years and didn't do anything, and then we did five years and then did something, then I could say what happened. Um, but we cannot do that because we, we cannot make a control group. I cannot say only half of U19 gets this training. We don't want to do that. But we are setting up now to make sure that our, our partner clubs can also use this technology to test their players and there we might be able to see excuse me there we might be able to see uh, uh, the effects create projects where we can see that uh, in, over time yeah for decades have talked about football intelligence yeah. decision making but we've kind of just taken it for granted haven't we and we probably haven't known exactly what we've meant when we say those things it could have been me saying what you just said so I've basically made this uh, argument in the club that that I'm I'm against the idea of game intelligence. So it's not because I'm against it. It it, it probably exists, but I don't think talking about it helps us anything. Uh, and the reason for that is that when you look at game intelligence, the way people today analyze it is by looking at the decisions. Right? Does he make game intelligent decisions? One, I don't think that it's me as a scientist that should tell any coach what is the right decision. I think that's a tactical question that I think the coach should, should they could probably debate that for years, but that's their problem. <laughs> that's not my problem. I'm not working in terms of understanding the game intelligent decisions. What I'm trying to do, what we're trying to do is to understand what are the prerequisites of making decisions and thereby helping the players having the best possible prerequisites for making decisions. And then they can make whatever decision and the coach can say that's a good or that's a bad decision. But I want to make sure that when they step on the pitch, we've trained their brain in so many different, uh, from so many different perspectives that they have all the scanning, they have the working memory, they have the motor inhibition to make the best possible decision whatever the coach might say he wants him to, to do. Uh, and you can, you, you've seen these uh, players that have been sold for yeah, millions of pounds to other clubs and suddenly they don't work. Uh, they don't play as well. And why, why don't they play as well? Well, they're under a completely different system, completely tactical setup. And now this previously game intelligent player is not game intelligent anymore, right? So, but that was only due to your your analysis of his decisions in the old system. But with this way of analyzing it, we could say, no, no, he still has great prerequisites for understanding the game. So it, the player hasn't changed. It's just the system that's changed. And if we have a metric that changes so much, depending on which team you play on, then I don't think it's a good metric. Mm. Uh, where just like, what does the raw data say about his perception in general and his ability or prerequisites for making decisions, that's a way more solid investigation, if you ask me. There probably has been a bit of a feeling in football as well that you can't develop these uh, perception and decision-making. Because I'm reminded of a, a Gear Jordet tells a story about Frank Lampard. Have you yeah. heard that one where he asks him, why are you so good at scanning? 
Yeah. And he said, I must have just been born with it. Yeah. But then it turned out his dad had always shouted pictures, pictures from yes. the sideline when he was yes. a young kid. So he trained to do it. Now we go into a discussion about talent. But mm. uh, if you ask me, 99% of all skills are trained. <laughs> talent is, of course, uh, to some extent, your size and your speed and your brain's general plasticity. But everything in the brain can be trained. Uh, we know that uh, you can teach yourself anything. If you're blind, you can teach yourself to see from sounds. <laughs> uh, so training something as scanning or working memory is, is possible without a doubt. And if anyone disagree, I'll be happy to hear their argument because I think that there's overwhelming evidence for the fact that the brain has, is, is neuroplastic and can change. But of course, if you tell a player to scan more, he's not going to go to the pitch the next day and scan more. Well, he might be, but then his technical abilities will fall because suddenly he's looking around and missing the ball. So you're going to have to accept that it takes at least three to six months to learn this. And that's why it's better to, to tell the U14 player than the first team player who's about to play a Champions League match tomorrow that he should scan because then he doesn't see the striker or whatever. So the earlier the better. Mm. But I think our idea is just that it's fine to train the scan, but we want to train all 14 capacities where scan is just one part of it, one cock in the wheel of all this. I think football clubs like the quick fix. Yep. So they would like a piece of tech that comes along and can improve yep. uh, neuroscience, decision-making. Um, but you're saying it's a much better approach to have a longer-term approach and be integrated with the coaches and yes. do it in a real way. Yeah, if the coaches don't buy in, then there's no reason of doing anything. Uh, I mean, if we look at the data revolution uh, and how it's been implemented in football, I think... I'm looking a lot of on that process and trying to learn from the, some of the mistakes I think happened in that. And I think a lot of analysis and data analysis became too complex too, too early without really thinking about what is it the coach actually wants to know. Um, and as far as I know, Liverpool has been good at saying exactly which data they want and why they want it where just getting data without who's using it, why they're using it, uh, is, 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 is the wrong way to do it. And if you just buy, uh, so I, I, neuroscience is very complex. And when something is complex, people tend to find the most complex solution, where I think the other way around. Mm -hmm. When something is complex, we should find the most simplistic idea and then work from that up and then maybe in 10 years, we can find a good complex solution, but for now, we should have a simple solution. And for that, for us, that was just grassroots on pitch, looking at the players, trying to change the exercises, trying to understand that slowly. And then from there on, you can start to implement more complex ideas. And do you work with the first team players as well at Copenhagen? No. No. So do you, what sort of age range is in the academy? Would it be like nine years old up to 21? Well, so like the ones I work with is U14 to U19. Right. Uh, and you can, you know, 
If I if 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 we did a, a scan on a winger, we could see he's a winger without knowing who he is, and that's what's interesting on a U19 level, because then you can say if he's supposed to be a central midfielder, then he has some things he's missing, or um, hey, in U14 this player is playing the on the side, but he has like a central midfielder cognitive abilities. So maybe we should start to put him in more in the middle. And that's something we've started now to work on because we want players to be specialized, but we also we also seen players that have been on the left back for many years and suddenly we realize they're great, put them in the central positions and there there might be they might be behind in learning that. So mm-hmm. I think that's something the cognitive testing can really help us with, making sure that the balance is correct and that we don't create one-on-one wingers that could have been great tens. Yeah, I was thinking that when you spoke earlier, actually. Because like, if you look at fullbacks, they've changed so much, haven't they? That yeah. You wouldn't want them to just have a very limited no. skill set. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, Man City has been great at that, right? Mm-hmm. And a player like Sinchenko, I think, uh, is a good example of that. that. If we put him in a scanner, he'd probably look like a central midfielder. That's my guess. Uh, Cancelo, maybe. Are any other clubs doing what you do at Copenhagen that you know of? Well, so the Bibcat that we developed with Be Your Best, we are the only ones using that. So what is that again? Sorry, just to explain. So the Bibcat is the VR cognitive testing um, that give us the cognitive profile. And by a cognitive profile, is that the ability of a player to learn? So the cognitive profile is, is 14 different measurable cognitive abilities. And what do you mean by cognitive abilities? So that would be their working memory score, their pattern recognition score, their attention score, their scanning score, their motor inhibition score, all these things combined. Um, But as far as I know, Be Your Best will will go to the market with this quite soon. Uh, We're not commercially affiliated with Be Your Best, so I don't have any (laughs) <laughs> a gain from that, but but I think they will be do that. We'll be doing that soon. Um, and then, of course, we have our know-how because we were the ones who were a big part of developing it, um, and we're gonna keep using it, no doubt. Yeah. What do you think the next few years hold in terms of neuroscience in football? How's it gonna develop? Do you think within clubs? That's a good question. So. I mean, for my part, I can say that our cognitive model will be published within four months. So I hope that that framework, that tool, of course, it's a scientific article. It's it's written by me and a professor. It's very cognitive neuroscientists type of paper, but it will deliver a framework. It will show all the good articles to read. It will give an hypothesis about the brain in football. And that's one thing that I'm just looking forward to publish to see how are people reacting to this. Um, and then, of course, I'm going to have to explain it uh, more to the football clubs. And then I think there's going to be way more of this cognitive testing in the future because the clubs have the money and the clubs want to compete on every any marginal gain they can find and the brain is such a, i mean a fundamental thing in this that i'm sure more tests are going to come 
more neuroscientists are going to to start to be involved in this, um, and especially on the academy level. Um, but I don't know. It, it might be in five years that no one thinks about this, or in five years, every club in in tough top 50 in the world has a cognitive neuroscientist. I don't know. It. I mean, it's the same about the physical uh, training now. I, I mean, our U14 has a physical trainer. Their load is being looked at, uh, monitorized, um, and it might be the same for the cognitive. Yeah. But we are now learning all the do's and don'ts by doing this from the bottom. bottom and in three years, there might be someone who created this test that where you just put the, the player in, they play the game and you get a full analysis and maybe you don't need a cognitive neuroscientist. But I still think you would always need someone who's able to explain to you why is working memory or why is motor inhibition important. And there you need someone who understands football and understands neuroscience. And you think clubs can make big gains and big improvements in this area yes. relatively cheaply, I suppose, really? Yeah, of course. Yeah. That's why I'm doing it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think just alone what we call preparation, uh, our model. So a player receiving the ball uh, who's not scanning, receiving the ball, he has to look up, has to scan, has to do the analysis and then make the decision. If you teach that player early on to be well prepared when he receives the ball, why he should do that and play it on the first touch or on the second touch, you can increase your playing speed by quite a lot. And that's that's something I see as being pretty easy to do that analysis, the preparation basically. Has too much focus just gone on scanning, whereas it's a much bigger area that you're looking at? I think scanning is what opened the field. But I, I think, I mean, looking at scanning is like only, only looking at the engine of, of a car. Right. It's like, sure, you need an engine, but you also need other, other things to work. Um, so that's why I, I can definitely see that younger players today, especially in Scandinavia, when we are doing our analysis, they are scanning in, in the same frequencies as Premier League players. It's like. 15-year-old boy like scanning like 0.7 in a game and that's of course because he had trainers who told him to do it but we're not necessarily seeing players who are skilled in scanning <laughs> because we don't care if you scan 0.3 or 0.8 times per second what we care is why you do the scanning and in which relation and I think that analysis can only come from a bigger understanding which is the attention, the pattern recognition, the working memory, the decision, the motor inhibition, all these things. That is what makes scanning, uh, what it, that's what gives it sense, right? Gives it meaning. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that, of course, scanning is extremely important, but it's if you only focus on that, you're not. I don't think you're going to make the player that much better. And that was very interesting about the uh, paper that you're going to publish. Where will people be able to find that? science journal uh, I think it's uh, it's it's the professor that is in charge of that and that's also something I, I know many clubs are doing this but I think it's really important for football to move forward is to what we've done is basically realized that we had Copenhagen University which is a great university and asked ourselves what do we want to know more about and then we found these professors 
And we basically, I went out there, hold, took meetings with them, also invited them to see matches, uh, to come to the academy to understand what is going on here. And then from them, we receive master students that understand the projects. And there we have like a steady flow of students that can all the time produce what we want to know. Um, I think that is an undervalued uh, resource because all, all young men and many young women want to work in football. Mm. And some of them have, I've really given them really tough master thesis projects and they still love it. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's something I think clubs could utilize a bit more. Mm. And then of course, the other thing is the sharing of ideas. I was going to say that, yeah, because the temptation might be to keep your knowledge for yourselves. Yeah, I heard uh, Sarah Rudd yes, yeah. uh, talking about this. And I think it makes so much sense because it's like when you work in Python and, or you work in data analysis, there's so much groundwork that just takes time, which you're basically not interested in. You're interested in the results. Uh, and here I would, I would love for the clubs to publish more because I don't know what they're actually doing. And it might yeah. be because they're not doing anything in this topic. I, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, we're going to publish the things we're doing. Oh, that's brilliant. We want to share it. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you for your time, Jess. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.